Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Gargoyle Podcast. I'm Nathan, a.k.a. The Gargoyle. Continuing on with my coverage of the 2017 Chattanooga Film Festival, tonight's episode is the interview that Mass Listeria and I did with Zach Carlson from the American Genre Film Archive and Bleeding Skull. Now, like I've said before, I'm kind of like a kid in a candy store during the film fest. I love movies, and so I love having an entire weekend where I'm able to be engrossed by cinema and fellow film lovers. But even though I love cinema in all of its forms, the Agfa and Bleeding Skull movies have consistently been some of the most enjoyable pieces of the Chat Film Fest for me for the last two years. So for me, being able to actually sit down and talk with Zach Carlson for a bit was absolutely one of the highlights of the Film Fest for me. And as I've mentioned on so many of my reviews, the experience surrounding a movie is part of what helps shape my enjoyment of the movie. So since some of the movies that I've enjoyed the most at the Chat Film Fest are the Agfa and Bleeding Skull movies, then being able to talk to the person who's been finding them and restoring them and actually bringing them to the Film Fest, it, it just made the entire experience all the more meaningful and gave me a more personal connection with these movies. So rather than listening to me ramble on about the interview, please enjoy the interview that Mass Listeria and I did with Zach Carlson of Agfa and Bleeding Skull at the Chat Film Fest 2017. So, uh, my name is Zach Carlson. I'm visiting the Chattanooga Film Festival from Austin, Texas. And in Austin, uh, I work with Bleeding Skull and Bleeding Skull Video, which uh, Bleeding Skull started over a decade ago as a website that reviewed homemade horror films. And it's kind of grown, or I guess just, you know, blobbed out into being a little bit more, where now we review homemade action films. And we actually started releasing uh, lost movies that never had distribution before. So we find movies from the 80s, early 90s that were completed but never released, and we finally give them a home in the world. And then separately, there's AGFA, which is the American Genre Film Archive, and I was one of the founders of that, uh, which is an organization that rescues 35mm prints and negatives of movies that would otherwise just be shat on and thrown out in a dumpster, uh, which is primarily you know, exploitation, action, horror, sci-fi, sexploitation, biker films, kung fu, etc. And uh, in the last 10 years, we've built up thousands of film prints, a lot of which are unique to the collection and otherwise would not exist in any form outside of maybe VHS. So, that's the long story. Most of these films are found like in, I mean really, like warehouses. Uh, there's an abandoned movie theater that we got 600 kung fu prints out of that was about to be demolished by a wrecking ball. Uh, a lot of which were like unique film prints, stuff from the Shaw Brothers, like great, incredible stuff that would just die uh, unless my friends and I were dumb enough to go grab it. So, that's us. The stuff, I guess, that you get are like you're just saying you found, you know, warehouses full of it, right? So, a lot of it, I'm assuming you don't know what you're getting when you get it, right? Now, are there other things that you are actually actively searching for, like to find prints of? It's... It's really difficult to be too specific because it's such a crapshoot. So, you know, you can't tell yourself, like, I am going to track down a print of Tourist Trap or whatever, you know, like, because you really don't know what it's going to exist. It's really just like going to garage sales, basically, except you're digging into, like, subterranean layers below condemned drive-in theaters. I mean, I'm not even kidding. Like, that's, like, stuff like that has happened. We have pulled film prints out of trash cans. The great heroic story of film rescuing, it isn't ours, but it's somebody who we work with. The uh, North Carolina School of the Arts was given a tip that this old distribution depot that handled a lot of exploitation and lowbrow, great, independent stuff uh, was shutting down. They were going to clear out the warehouse, and these guys had rented this, you know, the warehouse owner had rented a barge 
where they're going to take 20,000 35 millimeter film prints out on a barge and dump them in the Atlantic Ocean so they didn't have to pay the dump fees. And within 24 hours, the North Carolina School of the Arts intervened and rescued all of those prints, some of which we have since traded stuff for them and we, like, we work with them very closely. So that's the way that you have to go looking for this stuff. And there were hundreds of prints in that barge batch that were completely unique. Movies like The Love Butcher and just like, you know, stuff like that, like drive-in type films that would be gone forever if these guys hadn't heard about this barge dump and rescue those films at the last minute. There were also 60 prints of Santa with muscles starring Hulk Hogan, which might not have been as much of a tragedy, arguably, but they get rescued those as well. Yeah, yeah. So the ocean would have, the ocean would have been hulking out if that hadn't happened. So I love bad movies. Like I'm the one that for the last two years has been giggling the entire time during Bleeding Skull and Agfa. Um, what started your love for these bad movies? Like why, why is it that you want to save them? Well, and this is an absolutely genuine answer. I don't consider these to be bad movies. Like I think... Bad in quotation marks. What other people would consider bad. So this has always been my argument with you. You all, y'all say bad movies, but they're actually not bad movies. Just like when we were having the Uva Bowl conversation on the car ride the other day, I'm like, it's weird. I'm a fan of his because I actually get why he makes the movies. So people saying bad movie, it's like such a stigma of sorts. But if you really watched it and liked it for what it was, it's not really a bad movie. It's just, it's, it's entertaining, but it just doesn't have all the credentials of what the mainstream stuff that we normally watch is. So I don't really want to call it a bad movie. Again, that's why the quotes. Every single time. I think, I think the, the, the most tragic thing a movie can do is to have every resource and squander it. So I think when a movie has zero resources and the people make it anyway, that alone puts it above almost everything that Hollywood's doing. And so I have so much respect for that type of motivation that I, ha I feel protective of these movies. And, like, and I, and I want to share them with, with the world because there was nobody out there that was funding any sort of advertising for these films or you know, when they were being made. And certainly when their release was attempted, there was nobody there to help it. Whereas you look at a movie like, you know, I mean, I don't see new movies, but I've heard that uh, the Hobbit movies were a big pile of bullshit. So those guys had every single thing in the world going for them and they blew it, which to me is, that's really bad. You know, and that's like, so when I say that I don't consider these bad movies, I definitely do see that they have shortcomings and they definitely had budgetary limitations and they're not professional actors or filmmakers. Like I get, I totally see that. But then the fact that they had the audacity to go ahead and chase their dreams regardless, to me is the most endearing thing in the world. So I, I instead of saying bad movies, say they are best movies. <laughs> Fair enough. I will start calling them best movies. So related to that, do you think that best movies, um, <laughs> do you think that... Um, You've thrown him off track. <laughs> yeah, I, I will. He's having to view the world in a totally different way now. Oh, do, is it my turn for them? I, I, I do. What? What? Oh, oh no, I'm now, do you think that, uh, okay, for most people, <laughs> granted, maybe not people who have that same love and appreciation, do you think that people who watch some of these, quote, bad or best movies, do you think that increases their appreciation of some of the higher produced one? Or do you think it's the other way around, where watching more of these overproduced, over, um, just overacted movies actually 
increases the appreciation for more the low budget, more heart that goes into them? To me, I would feel like it might be the latter because once you realize that you don't need, you know, the, a Hollywood budget, you don't need like the big quote unquote machine behind a movie and that people can just do it themselves, like that's really inspiring and empowering. And really every major leap forward that was made in filmmaking or even like, you know, with music is always done by somebody that has no money and no backing because nobody would be willing to take a chance on them. So I feel like these movies, not to get scholastic and academic and turdy about it, but like, you know, I mean, it's really not that different when you look at a shot on video horror movie made in Oklahoma by some guy, like that's not that different from what college professors tout about somebody like Cassavetes. It was like, like, you know, he had this vision and he just went out and he did it. But that same instructor that's lauding Cassavetes would never watch a movie like Sledgehammer from 1983 or something like that. Because to them, that's just garbage that was shot on a camcorder. But it, that garbage had to be shot on a camcorder because there was no other way for them to get their story made. And so I think it kind of follows in that same lineage of movies like, the, you know, the, the new wave of independent film that started in the 60s. But it was just people wanting to tell less you know, intellectual stories and just stuff that was more, I guess, you know, I mean, stuff that was, that was less artistic, but no, le had no less merit. It's just like, you're trying to appeal to somebody on a more base level. But to me, there's nothing shameful about that. So if you want to make a horror movie rather than a divorce drama, but it's coming from the same drive in the same place, I feel like that's just as worthy of respect. Um, Bleeding Skull <clears throat> has done releases in the past. Um, does AGFA have anything set up uh, to maybe do that kind of distribution in the future or are you more focused on just being able to show them at festivals and things like that? No, um, the AGFA is actually going to start releasing stuff. They, broke, they set up a deal with Something Weird Video, which uh, is a Seattle company that was really focused on releasing 60s and 70s like exploitation and a lot of sexy, you know, kind of late night drive-in type stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that started where Agfa was just going to acquire some of the negatives and rights for these films. And they thought, yeah, we can rent these out to certain theaters, but there's only like maybe four theaters in the U.S. that want to show a movie like, you know, Thigh Spy or whatever movie it is. I don't understand why. <laughs> so instead, let's make these available. Let's get these on streaming. Let's get these on DVD. And they got a scanner. They're doing like high-res scans at AGFA of these films off of the negative and just trying to make this stuff available. And it's a nonprofit organization. Nobody there is benefiting from this stuff aside from sharing it with the world. So that was coincidentally the mission of Bleeding Skull with more like the shot on video backyard horror stuff as well as AGFA wanting to do the same sort of thing but with more broadly all exploitation, all independent horror. And both of those companies are now you know, being run by this guy named Joe Ziemba, and I'm involved in both. And then there's a guy named Sebastian, who is kind of the AGFA's backbone, has been there all along. And uh, there's Annie, who's a writer who also works with Bleeding Skull. And so it's just like a group of, I guess that's just four people total trying to get these two organizations that are really trying to push all this stuff out. And just so people can have more options. Like you go to a movie theater, you see the trailers, and you see the posters in the lobby, and just like, oh great, there's three kinds of movies that exist in the world now. And it's like, any, any way that you can get options out to people in any way now is important. Stuff like Netflix, you know, all the video stores are closed now. Netflix's selection is just like atrophying to nothing, you know, because they're focusing on their original content. They don't, they don't have a great backbone of movies. 
when Gene Wilder died, they had zero of his movies on Netflix. You think of every iconic movie Gene Wilder's in, just as an example. It's like... the or four now, if that. Blazing Saddles might be bad. Yeah. Well, they hustled, and they a month after he died, they had Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles and Willy Wonka. But at the time, it's just like if the greatest resource for human beings to watch movies doesn't have anything starring Gene Wilder, like there's a problem. Something's broken. So there's a lot of companies like Vinegar Syndrome, and you know, like Code Red and Severin, all these people that are like, hey guys, like let's remember that there was a lot of fun in the last hundred years. And let's keep this stuff available. And I think that's the main goal, I think, for everybody that's into this stuff. That's what you guys are doing your podcast about. Is like, hey, there's a lot of stuff out there to enjoy in the world. So you said it's nonprofit. And I've worked in the nonprofit sector before. Um, is there any way that like you could let our listeners know how maybe if they wanted to donate or to give to that? Because, I mean... We want to support that as much as we can because, like I said, we've been doing that. Me and him's been doing this for three years now, coming to the film fest. This is the first year we've ever kind of had our shit together, for lack of better wording. <laughs> and uh, thanks, really, truly thanks to bringing on these two guys. But uh, I take all the credit. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's just it's just really awesome uh, to know that this is something that you guys do is basically a labor of love, and we would want to give back to that. So if you just want to give a shout out to that, and then. We've took 15 minutes of your time, so that's way more than you should have given us. <laughs> I, I was just babbling. I do have uh, one uh, last question I would like to know just uh, your opinion on as far as where do you see the future of these types of movies? Because what I think about is, you know, you had grindhouses, you had drive-ins, then you had the direct-to-video, you know, where... A lot of these lower budget things would eventually get dumped because there was nowhere else to put them. You know, of course, some of them just disappeared into obscurity like you're talking about. But do you see the future being streaming? You know, is that the new direct-to-video? Is there something around the bend that you see coming? You know, is it just this singular distribution channels? You know, I mean... I mean... You know, unfortunately, I think the future probably is streaming. But the thing is, just like with music, it doesn't pay shit. So... It's getting to the point now where I think people that are really wanting to make anything independently, and that goes, I mean, for whatever you want to make, like whether you want to do like a zine, a comic, a movie, whatever it is, that you only are doing it because you are burning to do it inside. Like you love doing it. Anyone who goes into, I mean, we all know this, anyone who goes into film or radio <laughs> or like podcasts or whatever, thinking they're going to make money is a jackass. Like. That's just like, that's not going to happen. So you have to do it because you love it. And I think that there's, oddly enough, there's success stories that can come out of that. Like Jeremy Saulnier made Blue Ruin for almost nothing. And then this is a movie that played at festivals and everybody loved it. And then he got to make Green Room next, which was a huge hit that everybody loved. So it's just like, you know, I mean, you can still do it, but it's just that there's more of a battle to get there because there's no like financially feasible distribution channels that exist anymore kind of period like for somebody who's just busting out on their own for the first time so like with Bleeding Skull you know we always say that AGFA is non-profit and Bleeding Skull is no profit and we're very upfront with the filmmakers of like hey we're going to release your movie on VHS in 2017 because it's we love it and we're idiots and it'll sell like you're going to sell hundreds of copies you know and like that's as good as it gets but that means that like you know we usually do like 100 VHS and 500 DVDs but that means that by the time you sell a few hundred there's 300 people in the world 
that have an, a whole new appreciation of what you've done and a whole new idea maybe for some of these people of what can be achieved without the resources we were talking about earlier. Like that's kind of a big deal. Like the first time, it's like when you're a little kid, you know, Superman doesn't exist, but the first time you see somebody just do something, like jump off their roof into the pool, you know, like that's the closest thing you're going to get to Superman, but you think that's possible. Like I can do that. Like that's a terrible idea, but I'm going to do that. You know, and I think that movies are kind of the same way. And I, I think that people that are into the type of stuff that we like, like lowbrow movies and stuff like that, fell into it because at some point, even when you watch the first Evil Dead, which is now an iconic movie, that's clearly a movie made by guys without much of a budget and without any, any resources. And they just went out and did it. Like, that's a big deal. The first time you see a movie like that, I mean, do you remember, like, anybody here? Like, do you remember, like, the first movie you saw where you're like, oh, wait, this was made by humans. It wasn't made by a movie studio. Like, that's insane. Like, that's a big deal. I mean, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's the same thing. You watch that movie, and you can tell it was just made by a bunch of broke college friends that just went out and did it really well. And so, like, I just think that that's the best thing you can get out of making independent film now, is to get people's attention, impress them, make them understand that you're sincere, and maybe that will lead to you being able to, like, buy groceries on your third feature. I got one more before the uh, where can people actually send money to try try to help Agfa grow. For people who uh, don't have an appreciation of the lower budget types of stuff that Agfa and Bleeding Soil puts out, what are some movies that you would recommend to try to get someone to actually appreciate them rather than say, oh, well, that's shit, I don't want to watch it? That's a good question. Um, I've talked about one particular movie too much, but I feel like there's kind of the fail-safe, low-budget, kind of homemade movie in this genre that if somebody does not like this movie they're not a human being and i feel like that movie is called miami connection yes, yes. i knew that's where you were going yeah it's like if you don't love miami connection like there's no helping you it's there's like wrong. yeah like it's like it, that's like not loving you know peewee's big adventure that's like not loving pizza it's basically like you are a turd if you don't love this movie and a miami connection was made by a guy who had like watched really like 11 movies in his life he was a Taekwondo instructor who barely spoke English, and he came to America and he said, I'm gonna make the greatest action film ever made. And in my opinion, he did it because no one was telling him that everything he was doing was wrong. And even though he had no idea what he was doing, he went out and he just made the most sincere, authentic, true to himself action film that anyone could have ever made. And 30 years later, people love it. It took 30 years for people to catch yeah. on to it. But once it, once it got up, it was a very slow burn. And this guy was like 55 years old at this point, and suddenly the world was like, wait a minute, you're great. We love what you did. And that movie ruined his life. He, he's, he crashed his car making the movie. He mortgaged his house. He lost everything. And 30 years later, like, it was embraced because people suddenly saw his absolute genuine sincerity in that project. So Miami Connection, an action film about a synth rock band of adult orphans battling cocaine dealing ninja bikers so even if that synopsis doesn't sound good to you like <laughs> you're not, you if you're not hooked. yeah if that doesn't get you then like go back to hell like you know i'll see you in church <laughs> so anyway um you asked about people wanting to support um agfa and you can do like your standard uh, you know, donation thing. You go to americangenrefilm.org and you can do it through there. Or you can just kind of take, like, keep an eye on the website, watch Agfa's you know, like Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff, and just see what projects they have coming out. Because if something sounds fun to you and you want to buy like a very cheap DVD, 
of, of really fun movies. They're doing double features, Blu-rays, scanned off the negatives, like really nice, fancy. And that supports it too. It just shows that there's an interest in fascinating, bizarre, unique, unseen movies. There's a really insane misconception that a lot of human beings have that if it's good, I would have heard of it already. Like that's like kind of like parents think that way. Yeah, that's a problem. But every great movie that made a, that made a huge impact was a movie that came out of nowhere and did not fit in and changed the way movies were watched, you know? And so like that can come from anywhere. <clears throat> comes from, you know, the trailers are so pervasive now, so somebody feels like if they haven't already seen the trailer, then it's not important. So. The best thing for me that I ever did was I, I've never streamed a movie. I've never had Netflix, and it forces me to kind of do more of a treasure hunt. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to live in a town that still has three video stores, which is insane in 2017. But just even, like, you know, buying things online and just the tactility of, like, discovery and finding things, you know, there's people like going to antique stores and yard sales. And for me, it's like going for movies, you know, it's like, and you find that stuff anywhere. You never know. I was in a bait shop in Alabama yeah. and I found a VHS tape called Dead to Rights that was locally shot on a camcorder, like some backyard, no budget thing. And it blew my mind. And I bought it at a bait shop on VHS three years ago. And it, it's like, it's like, these are the discoveries that can lead you to other great things. And like, that's what life is supposed to be, is like new thoughts and new ideas and fun. So, yeah, just be fun. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, that was our interview with Zach Carlson of the American Genre Film Archive and Bleeding Skull. If you enjoyed it, be sure to check out my reviews of The Dragon Lives Again and The Zodiac Killer, both presented by the American Genre Film Archive. And be sure to check back soon for my review of Jungle Trap, presented by Bleeding Skull. Again, these were three of the most enjoyable movies of the Film Fest for me. Not necessarily because they were the best movies of the Film Fest, but because they were a unique experience that you're just not going to get with mainstream movies. And if you do enjoy the movies by Agfa or Bleeding Skull, be sure to go to their website, americangenrefilm.org, or find them on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of the social media sites, and be sure to support their search for undiscovered and underappreciated movies. Also, remember that you can find all my other reviews, con coverage, and just general geekery at gargoylereviews.blogspot.com. And like I said in my first episode of my CFF coverage, I saw 21 feature films, short films, partial films, or live shows at the Shout Film Fest, so be sure to check back soon for more of my CFF coverage. In the meantime, be sure to follow me on Twitter at gargoylereviews, on Facebook slash The Gargoyle, or on iTunes or Google Play. Just do a search for The Gargoyle. But until next time, that's been it for this episode of the Gargoyle Podcast. I'm Nathan, and as always, you can find me where geekery abounds. <laughs>